Well, as Grant uh, hinted at just a little bit ago, this is a little bit of an unusual service. It's going to feel a little bit different. Don't freak out on me. It's going to be okay. Um, but I think actually it's going to be a powerful time together. Um, I want to start this morning actually by following up on my closing comments from last Sunday's message in Psalm 48, which I heard from a number of you. And I, I always appreciate the feedback when you tell me that that sort of helped uh, you to process through what's going on in Israel right now to see the big picture of what God is doing in the world. So I'm really grateful that it was helpful. But at the same time, I had so much to say about that subject that I didn't have time to get to uh, the closing part, which was this discussion of Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem. So if you would, allow, allow me a little more time today in this first part of the message to share a few more thoughts about this concept, because I think it's very important that we understand what the Bible has to say about this thing called Zion theology. And, and you may or may not have heard that before. It's sort of a seminary level topic. We'll try to bring it down, but it's very, very important for us to, to see exactly what that means in our lives. And Zion theology is extremely prominent in the Psalms in particular. So it's not gonna be the last time that we see it come up. So we'll talk about it this morning. As we saw last week, the term Zion refers to a number of physical locations in the Old Testament scriptures, the city of David, correct? And Mount Moriah, where ultimately Solomon is going to build the first temple. And then the temple itself. And then Zion becomes known as the city of Jerusalem, the entire city, and ultimately even to the entire nation of Israel and Judah. And then it's also Zion is given these very descriptive names, the city of God, God's holy mountain, the eternal city, and more. In fact, I cited Psalm 132, 13, and 14 last Sunday. And this is an amazing statement about God's love for Zion. This is what it says. The Lord has chosen Zion. Yahweh has chosen Zion, it says. He has desired it for his habitation. This is a quote from Yahweh now. This is my resting place forever, he says. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And so the big concept to understand, whenever you read the term Zion in scripture, always associate it with God's presence among his people. That's the best way to understand, God's presence among his people. And that means while there is the physical aspect to it, it's actually more than just the physical aspect. It's more than just a location or a city. It carries with it the idea of God with us which for a New Covenant believer should ring a bell in your head, right? God with us. Now, throughout much of the Old Testament, Yahweh was uniquely present among his people in the great temple in the city of Jerusalem. That's where he was most prominent. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't still present everywhere because God is omnipresent, right? But there was a specific concentrated manifestation of God in the temple in the Holy of Holies. And because of that, Zion was understood by the Jews as the place from which they could expect him to come and rescue them. Zion, in their minds, was the place of deliverance and salvation. And we see this all over the text of Scripture. I'll give you some examples. Psalm 20. Boom. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. That's where they expected their help to come from because of the, the fact that God was present among his people during that age. We, saw, we studied Psalm 3 back in, I think, July. 
And David said, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. That was the expectation. So those two things are critical to know. Number one, that Zion was the place of God's presence among his people. And number two, that was the place where the Israelites expected their help to come from. But, and theologically, there's always a but, because of human sin. Because sin was rampant among the Israelites, and because divine judgment upon the city and upon the nation of Israel and Judah was inevitable, it became more and more obvious as you read through the Old Testament, chronologically, especially in the prophets, that this Zion, the earthly Jerusalem, was not actually the perfect ideal city. It was tainted with sin. So the picture of Zion then had to point forward to two things. First of all, to a future Zion on earth where God himself would come down and rule the world in righteousness. But then ultimately it pointed even farther forward to a heavenly Zion that was eternal in nature. Because how else can God say, I want to dwell here forever unless it's eternal in nature? So you read about this future Zion on earth all through the prophets. And again, I'm going to go to Isaiah. Look at, look at the power of this statement. Isaiah chapter 2. Now it will come about that when, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's Mount Zion, will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. And get that, all the nations will stream to it. Now think about how despised Israel is in our world right now. Can you imagine a world where all the nations, Muslim nations included, will stream to Jerusalem? Why will they do that? Well, because there's something very important going on in the city. Verse 3, it says, And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Can you imagine the world speaking that way? Here it is. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Can you think of a time in history when that's happened? That is a future earthly reign. Later in Isaiah chapter 24, which speaks of God's judgment upon the earth in the last days, it says, the earth will be broken asunder. The earth will be shaken violently for its transgression is heavy upon it. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, right? And we read about this in Matthew 24 in the New Testament, these signs in the sky in the last days. It says, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies will come down and literally reign on Mount Zion. This is the future kingdom. Other prophets, and I'll just give you one example, Micah says, in that day, which is the day of the Lord, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. And of course, we interpret these passages as this promised millennial kingdom that is coming when the God, the son will return in power and great glory, and he will destroy his enemies and he will establish his rule over the entire world. He will govern the world from Zion, from the city of Jerusalem. What a day that'll be, right? By the way, we saw this prophesied way back in Psalm two. We covered Psalm two. I don't know how long ago where Yahweh talks about his son. And he warns the nations. Listen to what he says. Pay homage to the son. 
that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. And God says this of the son, I have set my king, my king, God says, where? On Zion, on my holy hill. So there is coming this, this future Zion on the earth, but then track with me now, we're aware of that, but there's also something much bigger that's coming as well. The Zion in heaven that is eternal. I mentioned last Sunday how the New Testament writers reveal more about this, the heavenly Jerusalem. And we, we look quickly at portions of Hebrews 12, which Jeff read for us in our call to worship. We'll come back to that. But I want to show you a passage. There are breadcrumbs in the Old Testament which also speak about this. Look at this from Psalm 87. It says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Now, what comes next is extremely surprising to the reader. Look at how the psalmist goes on to list various people groups who are found in Zion. I shall mention Rahab, which is a poetic name of saying Egypt, and Babylon, among those who know me. What? Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this one was born there. The Lord will count when he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Okay, so what is this? There is a Zion whose citizenship is beyond this world. And the implication in this psalm is that God is populating this eternal heavenly Zion with people from every race, tribe, tongue, and culture. He's doing it. Even from places like Babylon and Philistia, who are traditionally enemies of Israel. How gracious is God, right? This is astounding. By his grace, Yahweh registers them as citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. And he declares that actually they were born in Zion. Hmm. So Zion becomes, we call this the mother city of all the nations. Zion is the mother city for all who will trust in the name of the Lord. And here's the interesting part to me. The New Testament writers actually understood this. Paul, for example, picks up this same theme in Galatians chapter 4. He talks about Abraham and his relationships with first Sarah and then Hagar, right? And the sons that are produced through those two women. One is a child of slavery. The other is the child of promise. And get this now, Paul says that Hagar and her son correspond to Mount Sinai and the old covenant, and they correspond with the physical present Jerusalem, which is filled with sin, what about Sarah? Sarah and her, and her son correspond to the eternal city of Zion and the new covenant. And listen to what Paul says in Galatians 4.26. This Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. How many times have you read through Galatians and you never saw that verse? Or you saw it and you said, I don't know what that means. Now make the connection with Psalm 87. She is our mother. So think about it in, in, in your terms. Or, or mine. I was physically born in the city of Santa Monica, California, 60 years ago, and I'm a citizen of the United States. But more importantly, I've been born from above in the heavenly Jerusalem. So when God is registering his people, he says, Jeff, no, United States, but that one was born in Zion. And he says that about you too. Isn't that amazing? 
So our truest citizenship is in the eternal city, in the Jerusalem above, where God is present among his people in the person of King Jesus, who is called from way back in Isaiah all the way through the New Testament. He's called what? Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, isn't he? Remember what he said when he left the city and went up on the Mount of Olives? He said, it's all coming down. And later on, he said, what? I'll rebuild it in three days. He fulfills. He, he, he makes the temple where God was once present obsolete and says, I'm the new temple. Emmanuel, God with us. And don't we love singing this lyric at Oak Hill? We sing, and mine are keys to Zion City where beside the king I walk. That is, that is the fulfillment of where we're headed if we know Christ. We'll have the keys to this place called the heavenly Jerusalem, to Zion City, where we will walk with our king. And then the song finishes, for there my heart has found its treasure. Right now our hearts are mixed. They're all over the place, right? Someday our hearts will find its treasure because Christ will be ours forevermore. And we love singing that song. So now go back in your mind about the verse that we, we read last Sunday and what Jeff read this morning to, to Hebrews chapter 12. I'll put it on the screen. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion. Who's he writing to here? Believers. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are what? Enrolled in heaven, same, registered in heaven, enrolled in heaven, similar language from Psalm 87. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, our king and high priest, the mediator of a new covenant. So we don't come to Mount Sinai, right? It's not Hagar and Ishmael and Mount Sinai and gloom and darkness and separation from God. No, it's the city of promise that comes through Isaac and the new covenant. Notice it says, you as a Christ follower have come to Mount Sinai. Not that you will come, but you already have. I know, I know this is a hard concept, right? This already not yet concept is a difficult one, but you've already been enrolled in the heavenly, in the heavenly realms. It's one of the great things about being a Christian. You don't have to guess if you know Christ, if you've trusted in him by faith alone, you don't have to guess, man, am I going to be a part of that eternal city? You're already enrolled as a permanent citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the eternal Mount Zion, and that's where God's presence will be with you forever and ever. Amazing. This is Zion theology. And then at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21, what does John write? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That should get you emotional. It, it, it pierces my heart. I, I so long for that. We should all long for this moment that God wraps everything up 
and invites us into the city in which he says, you've been born. This is your citizenship. And he finishes, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Uh, Grab your Bibles. We're going to look at Psalm 50. We're going to look at another aspect of, of how God comes out of Zion and how he interacts with his people. So this is an important psalm. Psalm 50, a psalm of judgment. And as we open it up, we have a new psalmist for the first time in a while, right? We've done a whole bunch of David psalms, and we've had several from the sons of Korah. Now we come to Psalm 50, which is one of 12 songs by um, a prominent musician by the name of Asaph. You see his name there at the top. Now, Asaph was a designated worship leader in the temple during the reigns of David and Solomon. And he is prominently mentioned in 1 Chronicles 16 when David brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. And he sets Levites outside of this tent that he had, he had set up for the Ark of the Covenant. And he tells them to lead. And it says this man, Asaph, is the chief of the musicians. And then get this. This is for, all, this is for Mark Libby and for Grant and others who love the drums. It says that Asaph, it talks about stringed instruments, which very common in that day, harps and lyres, things like that. But it says, this is a quote, Asaph played loud sounding cymbals. He was a drummer. Is that true? Sure, okay. I mean, he was leading worship from percussion is basically what happens here. And, and you don't often see that. So amazing, right? Okay, let's look at this. And the first six verses are, are set the stage. And this is where we talk about Zion and, and one aspect of God, which is judgment from Zion. Look what it says. Verse one, the mighty one, God... The Lord has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it is very tempestuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge who? his people. Gather my godly or my faithful ones to me, he says, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So as a quick outline here, this is what we call a grand theophany. This is Asaph picturing this, this scene and what we call the theophany, which is a visible manifestation of God. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he describes the God of the universe manifesting himself in visible form, coming to his holy mountain, the place that he loves, and then shining forth from this place called Zion. And look at the picture. He comes with holy fire preceding him, fire often being the symbol of judgment, and of a storm of like wind and thunder, thunder encircling him. Now, try to picture that in your mind's eye what that is like. And it, it may remind you of what we read in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah describes this vision that he got of the throne room of God. And there's all kinds of manifestations. There's fire and there's smoke. And when God speaks, the foundation of the temple shakes. 
some of the same language here, right? And we often forget just how mighty God is until we read a passage like this, right? And it, it reminds us why often in scripture we hear about the fear of the Lord. Not to be scared of him if you, if you know him, but to be in awe of him because he indeed is very, very mighty. God is not to be trifled with. And, and our culture has lost that sense, haven't they? He is not to be trifled with. It, it rightly causes, when you read language like this, it rightly causes finite people like ourselves, contingent beings, it causes us to go, wow, I do not want to be an enemy of that being. And you don't. You don't want to be his enemy. That's a terrifying thought because Hebrews says God, our God is a consuming fire and we can't forget that, right? We got to balance this vision that we have of, of, of you know, we want to, we, we have, we've got Jesus, right? And we love to talk about Jesus, but sometimes we forget the fear of the Lord and the mighty power that God wields. And who exactly is this judge? The psalmist calls him three names, the mighty one, God and the Lord. In Hebrew, that's El Elohim Yahweh. He, he, pile, he heaps up three divine names in order to tell you and I as readers that this is the utmost picture of God's majesty and power. He is self-existent. He is all-powerful. He is creator, sovereign, and he is also personal as the covenant God of Israel with the name Yahweh, right? So the judge takes his seat on this holy mountain and he summons as his witnesses the rest of the universe. God can do that. Right? The heavens above and the earth below, all of it, to bear witness to a series of indictments that he is about to lay out, but against who? His people. Now, back then, if you were an Israelite, you'd say, well, good, our covenant God is finally going to judge all these wicked pagan people around us. God's people have a tendency to do that, right? Well, God's going to judge them, not me. But, but no, that's where he starts, right? Judgment begins in the household of God. Even Peter talks about that in the, in the New Testament, right? He's come to confront his own people. Now, there's two sets of defendants in this indictment he's about to lay out. Verses 7 through 15 is the first set of defendants. And he's already referred to this group in verse 5 as his faithful ones, which is interesting, right? And God says, gather this group first. They've made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Bring them before me because there's a very serious problem going on. And this is for all of us to pay attention to as worshipers today. Lest God say this of us in our worship lives, right? He looks down and he says, well, these are my faithful ones, but there's a problem that needs to get pointed out here. Verse seven, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. So courtroom language, right? God is not just the judge, but he's the prosecutor who's gonna lay out these charges. And he says something here that is, uh, it, it's, it's subtle, but it's in, he says, I'm your God, right? I'm God, you're God. That should be obvious, but we're gonna see that's actually part of the problem. The people have forgotten exactly who Yahweh is. And sometimes we do that too. We forget who God is. But before he brings the charges, the Lord wants to make sure that they understand something in verse eight. Look what it says. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. And your burnt offerings are continually before me. So he's like, I'm not here to criticize the way you bring animal sacrifices to my altar. That is not the problem. In fact, you're really good at this. You're doing really well. You're good at ceremonies and you're good at rituals, but there's a problem. And verse nine is, he expresses it. It's very subtle, but it's a devastating statement. Look what God says in verse nine. 
I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. I won't take them. I won't take any of your animals away from you, says the Lord. Because in bringing them, everything that you're doing has become meaningless anyway. I won't receive them from you. You've forgotten why I gave you those commands of atonement. You forgot the reason behind it. Those sacrificial offerings I required of you as a way for you to come into my presence and to demonstrate your heart before me. It wasn't really about the animal. It was about your heart as you brought the animal to the altar. But what happened is you've fallen into this empty ritualism, this repetitive action without engaging your hearts. Can we do that in the New Testament church? Very easily if we're not careful, if we're not on guard. That's why this is such a good lesson for us. In fact, you're trusting in the actual animal, not me. Think about that. God says, you're, you're actually, you're, your trust is in the, that animal that you're laying on the altar and the fact that you did it well and you've forgotten the object of your trust. You've forgotten me. I'm your God by covenant. But there's no relationship going on here. You've, you're congratulating yourselves for, fill, for fulfilling all the nuances of the law, but you've missed your first love. Now look what God says in the next four verses. He says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. How many times have we heard that? That's where it comes from. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? So the Israelites in that day had somehow come to this false notion that Yahweh was in need of their sacrifices. Yahweh needed, God needs me. We all got to go to the altar because God needs these sacrifices. <laughs> right? I, we're, we all shake our heads, but be careful before you judge others. That was a common pagan idea, idea in the ancient Near East. It was a very common thing. Our gods are dependent upon what we bring to them, they thought. In fact, pagan sacrifices in the ancient Near East, it was about bringing this food and drink to the idol so that the god could, could enjoy it. It was like a feast for the gods. That was a common idea. In fact, there's a very old story that confirms that this is true. And I'm looking at anybody that's like a, an ex-Catholic who might know the story. Anybody heard the story of Bell and the dragon? Okay, a little bit here and there. Very interesting story. It's, it's part of what we call the Old Testament Apocrypha, and it's found in Roman Catholic Bibles. They consider it an addition to the book of Daniel. So we have 12 chapters in the book of Daniel. The Roman Catholic Church has 14. So they add two chapters, two different stories, and one of them is called Bell and the Dragon. Here's how the story goes. It takes place under the reign of the Persian king Cyrus. It's not historical, but it takes place under the reign of Cyrus, and King Cyrus honors Daniel above all of his servants, but he's concerned. He says, Daniel, why don't you go and worship at the temple of Bel, who was a Babylonian god? Why don't you do that? And Daniel says, I don't worship gods made with human hands. I only worship the living God. And, and, and Cyrus insists, well, but Bel is real. And Daniel says, oh, king, don't, don't be fooled. I know exactly what Bell is made of. He's clay inside. He's bronze outside. He's never eaten a darn thing. And this angers the king. 
And so he sets up a face-off between Daniel and the priests of this god, Bel. And he says to these priests, if you can prove that Bel eats the food that we give to him, then I will execute Daniel. It's a face-off. So that night, food and drink are placed in front of the statue of Bel in this temple. But Daniel has a plan. He arranges to go into the temple, and he sprinkles ashes on the floor of the temple before the door is sealed. And they all go to sleep. And in the morning, the king wakes up, and David, Daniel wakes up, and they go into the temple, and the food is gone. And Cyrus praises Bell. See, Bell's real. He ate the food, right? Until Daniel goes, hey, uh, king, look at the floor. And there's footprints <laughs> in the temple, that, in the ash that he had laid down. And it, they led to a secret door that the priests and their families would come in each night and eat the food and drink. And so... Cyrus is heartbroken over this, but he says, you're right, Daniel. And he literally hands the idol, the statue, over to Daniel to destroy, and they tear down the temple. Now, that's a really interesting story, right? It's not, it's not, it's not canonical, uh, and it shouldn't be in anybody's Bible, but it's not theologically wrong either. That was the mentality in the ancient Near East. You fed your gods. You fed them. But the living God doesn't get hungry, right? He doesn't need food or drink. And even if he did get hungry, Yahweh says to Israel, look, I already own everything. You think I can't pick off one of those cattle on a thousand hill if I got hungry? It's ridiculous, right? So why would I ask finite human beings to meet my needs? So this is the heart of the indictment against this first group, right? That they are, it's not that they're being unfaithful in bringing their sacrifices. It's in the process of bringing their sacrifices they're insulting Yahweh as if he is a God made of wood or stone. They're insulting him as if he needed their possessions. There's a, a story of a dad who, and, and every, every young father can, can uh, identify with this. Dad took his five-year-old son to a baseball game, and the boy said, hey, dad, can, can I have some money to buy some candy? And the dad said, all right, son, let's go to the concession stands. I'll buy you some candy. And uh, he buys them a bag of M&Ms, and they get back to their seats, and the kid digs in. And about a minute later, the dad says, uh, hey, son, can I have some of those M&Ms? What does the boy say? No. And the dad goes, well, just a couple. Can I have some of those M&Ms? And this time, emphatically, the boy looks up and goes, no. Now, that's not uncommon for five-year-olds, Right? But there's four things that that boy didn't understand. And as I share these four things, I want you to think about how you worship the Lord and, and your life before God, because we can sometimes act like this. First, the boy didn't see that his dad had given him that candy as a gift from the heart. He didn't recognize that. Again, he's five-year-old. We're going to give him some grace here, right? But he didn't recognize that dad, from just out of love, gave him this gift. Secondly, the boy didn't understand that if the dad really needed some candy, he could have bought every bag in the, in the ballpark. He had plenty of money. He just wanted his son to share. Third, the boy didn't recognize the dad's authority or strength because you know what that dad could have done? Grabbed that whole bag out of that kid's hand and just ate them all. He could do that, right? He could rip them right out of his son's hands. And fourth, the boy didn't understand how many more bags of M&Ms the dad could have bought for him if he had just reciprocated that love and shared that first bag. Like, son, I can buy you many more. But in not sharing, do you think the dad was gonna buy him more? No. 
As worshipers, we can find ourselves acting like that five-year-old, not thankful for what we've been given, not seeing where it actually comes from, thinking that we've earned it, not understanding that God desires relationship with us, but he doesn't need stuff from us, right? He wants the relationship, but he doesn't need things from us. And then completely missing the required heart behind our sacrifices, whether it's our time, our energy, our schedules, our service, our giving, or anything else, missing the whole heart behind those things and just going through the motions of ritualism and checking boxes, right? We can all fall into those things. That's why, again, that's why sometimes reading these particular passages is such a good reminder. And when we do those things, we miss out on the blessings that come with a proper understanding of God and a proper abiding with him in a real relationship through Jesus Christ. And sadly, this is where the people of Israel were in the days of Asaph. So God basically says to them, look, until you come back to understanding who I truly am and until you return with a true heart of worship and sacrifice, go ahead and keep your stuff. Don't bring those animals. I won't take them from your barns anymore. It's a serious indictment. And so it's a healthy thing for all of us to consider as we relate to God, where are our hearts as we worship him, as we give sacrificially to him, and that's financial giving or it's giving of our time, our energy, our calendars. What's the heart behind it? Why, why do we do what we do? Is it empty ritualism or is it love for that relationship? By the way, a quick plug for next Sunday. Next Sunday is Reformation Sunday, right? Where we often talk about Roman Catholicism, and you talk about empty ritualism and how it can seep into a church and not be recognized. Come back next week and we'll talk about some of those things. Because look, as human beings, sinful human beings, we're all prone to wander into that if we're not aware of it. Okay, so the indictment against defendant number one is laid out in verses seven through 13. Here comes the correction in verses 14 and 15. So if, if, if anybody here struggles with ritualism and, and you're not getting the heart behind your sacrifice, here's what God wants you to do. Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the most high. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. That's the relationship. What does the Lord want? Thankfulness, faithfulness, and trust. Those are the three things. Thankfulness, faithfulness, and trust. So when you bring an offering or a sacrifice to the Lord, in whatever that is, I mean, this is not just a message about financial giving. Whatever sacrifice you bring to the Lord, it should be rooted in thanksgiving because every single thing you have comes from his hand. And by everything, I mean everything. I, I, this, we miss this so often. You're like, yeah, but you know, I'm pretty smart. Or, or I've, got, I've got this one really, really incredible skill. It came from his hand. And so everything, every sacrifice we bring before him has to be rooted in thankfulness. Number two, when you commit to something and you make a vow to the Lord, to do something, to serve him in some way, to bring a sacrifice to him. When you vow to him, you promise that you're going to do this, do it. Fulfill your vow. That's what it says, right? In verse 14, pay your vows, be faithful, 
to see it all the way through to the very end and to strive to do it with your absolute best because he's worthy of your obedience. He's worthy of your best, your excellence. Amen? So be faithful. And then third, when trials and difficulties come, stop relying on your own resources to slip out of it. Go to the Lord. Say, Lord, I need your help. He's, he's a father. He longs to come to the aid of his children if we'll only ask. And when we do that, the text says that he comes and he, he rescues us and then we turn around and we praise him for it, right? It's, it's cyclical and that develops the relationship. It deepens our relationship with him as he comes to our aid and we praise him and honor him for it. These are the things that God desires. Those are three very practical things. If you struggle with ritualism, those are three practical things. Now, let's look at the, the second defendant in verses 16 to 21. Now, this is a different group than the first. This group has fallen into a far worse sin than just missing the mark in terms of their heart behind their sacrifices. God calls this group the wicked. These are the covenant breakers of Israel, the hypocrites of Israel. These are the folks who know God's law, but still violate his law and then think there's no consequence for it. Verse 16, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. You dare to speak of my commands. You dare to talk about my covenant as a Jew when your lives are filled with rebellion and disobedience. Your mouth honors me, but your life dishonors me. These are the hypocrites, right? And listen, I think it's important to consider when you look at these two different groups, you go, well, this one is much more severe. Listen, that first group can become the second group if they don't change their course. If you make empty ritualism a habit of your life and that becomes entrenched in your life, it will ultimately lead to hypocrisy. It will take you into more sin. So it's sort of a, a graduated warning here. If you just struggle, hey, my heart's not in the right place, do something about it. Go to the Lord, confess that, repent of it, make a change, get some help from somebody, lest you fall into this category of hypocrisy. And then look at verse 17, when a worshiper loses sight of a proper understanding of God and loses the true heart behind worship, they will necessarily have to turn away from God's discipline. They don't want it. They don't want it. They will necessarily have to turn away from his instruction. They will cast God's word behind them. What does that mean? In order to stay on that sinful path and not feel guilt and shame, they, they, will, not, they will not read God's word. They will not listen to God's word being preached. They don't want to hear it. They will put all of his wisdom and instruction behind them so they can keep going down this path. It is a doomed path. So get it fixed. This is what God's saying to Israel. Get it fixed. There's a window. There's a window open of mercy, but that window doesn't stay open forever. The indictment goes on, verse 18. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose and evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. So the hypocrites not only sin themselves, but they're pleased to welcome other sinners who do the same things they do into their friend groups. Why? Because then they can feel better about their sin. 
And notice in verses 19 and 20, the psalmist is talking about some of the very same sins that gets picked up in the New Testament, right? Sins of the tongue, the words that we choose, slander, gossip, lies, profanity, mocking, criticizing, grumbling. Far too many churchgoers today are prone to let all kinds of things fly out of their mouths without thinking twice and then come to church the next day and sing praises and throw their hands up and give in the offering box and serve, you know, setting up chairs or whatever. And there's a total disconnect. There's no confession of that sin. There's no acknowledgement of that sin. They think they can just, again, ritualism, come into church and do all these things and that God will be pleased. He's not pleased with that sacrifice because of the hypocrisy in your life. Now, verse 21 is insightful. God says, these things you have done and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. And in some sense, this is the greatest sin of this wicked group. They have lost sight of the holiness and the majesty of God. They become too comfortable in their view of him. And they say, look, hey, God hasn't zapped me yet. I'm still prospering, so he must be okay with me. Hmm. They take God's grace and his long-suffering nature, and they mistake it for a lack of concern on God's part about their sin. Or worse, they come to believe that he's just okay with it. He'll approve of my sin. And the most powerful statement there is, he says, you thought I was just like you. You thought I was like a man, that I would put up with these things. Acting as if God is on our level, that he's our buddy. Remember the picture of the theophany coming out of Zion? That's not your buddy. He's not on your level. Don't treat him that way, as if he's a man, that there won't be any consequences for our choices. What they don't grasp is the beautiful truth that we see in the gospel. So there's a lot of judgment coming, right? But the beautiful truth of the gospel is, is that God is being patient with them. He's being long-suffering. Why? to draw them towards repentance. We often don't, we don't think of the Old Testament in these terms. We always think, right, Old Testament judgment, New Testament grace. Uh-uh. Don't, don't, don't fall into that trap. This is God. This is God saying, look, I've been long-suffering with you. I have, I have remained silent, but don't mistake that, that I'm okay with your sin. I'm trying to draw you to repentance and to confession. And that window is open. Grace remains if you only turn back. We sing the song, right? Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. So if you're like, ah, but my sin is really bad. My habits are terrible. It's awful. His mercy is more. And that window is open. But look at verses 22, 23. We'll finish here. The psalm ends with God speaking to both groups, both defendants, and in verse 22, he warns the hypocrites. Now consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you in pieces. Oh, oh, and there'll be none to deliver you. Ooh, they should know that God's patience will run out and turn to judgment at some point. Like I said, his door of mercy is wide, but it does not stand open forever. If they won't repent, they will meet a frightening end because these are not true believers right? Their life proves that. They've never known Yahweh. They're simply living for themselves. And to those who are failing in their ritualism, God reminds them in verse 23, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me 
and to him who orders his way aright, in other words, he who comes back to the path, I shall show that person the salvation of God. That's our gracious God, right? To my people, God says, acknowledge your sin, repent and turn from it, realign yourself with my word, with my instruction, and then act upon that in obedience, and I will lavish my grace upon you. That's the gospel, isn't it? That is the gospel. It's not salvation by works, by the way. Don't get this wrong. That picture is no different than what we're taught in the new covenant. We are saved by faith alone. We are justified in God's sight, apart from our works. But if he is your Lord, you will consistently walk through this pattern of dealing with your sin, right? Of repentance, of confession, and then basking in God's forgiveness and in his grace, That's normative Christianity, and it's right here in the Old Testament. So guys, reject empty ritualism. Reject the path of the hypocrite. Hypocrite, Do not cast God's instructions behind you, but listen to the voice of the Spirit within you. Come back, confess, repent, and experience once more the lavishing of God's grace in your life. It's so beautiful. I'll just close with this. What is the ultimate goal of the judge? who comes out of Zion in this psalm. I'm just going to quote John Piper because I think he summarizes it really well. Piper says, the last line of verse 15 is the answer. Quote, I will deliver you and you will glorify me. He wants to answer their cry for help so that they will glorify him. Listen, his goal is our good and his glory. We, we, we say that all the time at Oak Hill, don't we? His goal, God's goal, is our good and his glory. We get the salvation, he gets the exaltation. We get delivered, he gets magnified. That is the goal of the psalm, and Piper says that is the goal of our church. And it is the goal of God in all that he does to satisfy his hungry people and glorify himself who never gets hungry. Amen? I thought I would just give you guys a few moments to bow your heads and process through anything that you've heard this morning, whether it's the thankfulness for the eternal Zion or it's something about the judgment from Zion that we see in this psalm or, or the grace that God has lavished in your life. Maybe you need to confess sin. Whatever it is, whatever the Spirit, whatever the Spirit is doing in your heart right now, let's take it to him in prayer over the next few minutes.